You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome you all to this discussion here today on poverty, er- poverty eradication, growth, social inclusion and climate change. Um, today is World Poverty Day. There's been some, it's been a, an interesting few weeks, um, a lot of new global poverty analysis coming out from OFI and the UNDP uh, with the Multidimensional Poverty Index, um, from the World Bank with their uh, Poverty and Shared Prosperity Report, which I think just got released today. Um, and we're going to start by talking about um, ODI, CPAN, uh, Chronic Poverty um, Advisory Network. I'm going to get it. Thank goodness. Um, ODI, CPAN's uh, sort of work on poverty dynamics. So looking beneath the aggregate trends, looking beneath the aggregate patterns, and seeing what, what goes into those figures, the movements in and out of poverty, and particularly what enables a sustained escape from poverty. Um, before we get into the substance, I'm probably, uh, I should do some housekeeping. So the toilets, I think, are down there and on the left. Um, if there's an emergency, make your way in an orderly way out and turn right and, uh, and head outside. I should just remind everybody that this is being um, broadcast online and I think will be available as a recording afterwards. So. Um, we can't say it's Chatham House rules. Anything you say will be recorded for posterity. Um, so Vidya is going to uh, present CPAN's analysis, and then we're going to go to four, um, three speakers and one discussant uh, who will each bring a particular perspective to this intersection of different themes. So we're going to start with, I believe... Um, Start. The first sort of uh, speaker will be Whale Maiden, um, who will talk. Who is the executive director of the um, Climate Action Network International, an advisor to the grouping of um, countries concerned with uh, climate vulnerability. So, talking a little bit about um, about sort of environmental links to uh, prospects for growth and poverty reduction. I think our next speaker will be Andy Bakai, who is Professor of Development Economics at University of Sussex, um, doing, who's done research and advice for a number of different organisations on the links between um, the, the impact of policy on poverty and inequality outcomes, and in particular at the moment doing some research on um, gender and labour markets in a number of East and West African countries. Um, following that, we'll go to Yelka Boston, who is Reader in Gender and Development at uh, King's College London, um, with a particular specialty in um, analysis of violence against women, and particularly in Latin America, um, and in recent years in Peru in, in, in particular. And then finally, we're very, very pleased to have Danielle Spencer, who's um, Senior Technical Specialist at ActionAid, talking about how this resonates with ActionAid's experience of, of trying to address these issues and these intersections in programming. Um, without further ado, I think it's probably best if I hand over to Vidya. I'll just note that um, 
we will talk for about, I think, half an hour in total. Is that right? No, about 45 minutes in total. So Vidya will present a little bit. Then we'll have a, a short um, commentary from each of the speakers. Uh, Danielle will, will react to some of those points. I'll put some questions to um, each of the speakers, and then we'll throw it open to the audience in the room and online. Um, so if you are online, then please um, email in your, your questions, and hopefully those will be passed to us up here. Um, I should also say that we would encourage attendees to um, join the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag uh, end poverty and end child poverty. Um, and for people who actually know how to tweet, I'm sure that means a lot, but uh, I, I'm not the best to recommend. Um, lovely. So, Vidya, shall we pass over to you? Yep, sounds great. great. <clears throat> right, thank you, Tim, for the introduction. And as Tim mentioned, um, we're here today to speak about the potential of a joined-up dialogue. So first, for a bit of context, we know that the SDGs have been developed as a set, but we also see that there is typically a weak joined-up dialogue between them with separate communities of interests often leading the way on each. Now here are three that we're speaking about today, which we feel justifies a more joined up approach to analysis and policy making in these areas. So for example, growth we know is essential for poverty reduction. But how does, for example, climate change get in the way or even enhance prospects of this growth? And in contrast, then, how does climate, um, how do, to what extent is inclusive governance necessary as well in, for example, in preventing inequalities leading to conflict, all of which then affects um, by constraining or enabling different ways poverty reduction. So the hope is that through the session we can start a process of thinking and communication amongst individuals and entity organizations in these various areas of interest. And at the end, we would like to invite you to be part of an SDG joint up network. And in the reception following this discussion, we could discuss further what sort of network this might look like and what sort of practical implications and areas might be considered in this joint up network. So that's a bit on the context. So in CPAN, the Chronic Poverty Advisory Network, we as well are a network of different sorts, one of researchers, of policymakers, and practitioners hosted here at the ODI. And in CPAN, we're primarily focused on chronic poverty and getting to zero poverty and leaving no one behind. This is, of course, then in direct keeping with World Poverty Day today, but it's also only part of the story. And in CPAN, we work on chronic poverty, but we also believe that to get to zero extreme poverty, this requires additional actions. So yes, tackling the persistence of poverty, but also helping prevent impoverishment or descent into poverty. And then once people escape poverty, ensure that these escapes are in fact sustained over time. And this is a key message that was outlined in our last International Chronic Poverty Report from 2014-2015. So our recent set of studies also highlights uh, around sustained escapes, which I'll be speaking to you about today, highlight a relatively consistent process whereby individuals typically have a set of initial endowments, they build income sources, and then these income sources allow them to invest in various assets, and together these livelihoods and assets then can contribute to sustained escapes from poverty. But what our research shows is that these sustained escapes are typically occurring in the presence of certain conversion factors. In other words, factors which convert these assets and livelihoods into sustained escapes. And today we're speaking about three conversion factors in particular, which we 
again feel justify this joined up discussion, so specifically around economic growth, inclusive governance, and climate initiatives. And some of these factors, it should be mentioned, also form our current program of work within CPAN. So we're soon to launch an international chronic poverty report on pro-porous growth. Stay tuned. As well as we're fundraising at the moment for upcoming chronic poverty reports, one which will be on social inclusion and governance, and a following one on climate change again. So again, three critical areas in the road to zero poverty. So on this road to zero poverty, what we see from our studies, which some of you might have already seen in this chart, which is newly published in our report out today, is a variety of poverty dynamics. So across countries that we've investigated, so these include um, Bangladesh, Nepal, Cambodia, Philippines, Ethiopia, Malawi, um, Tanzania, Niger, and um, Rwanda. So what we see is that across countries, chronic poverty remains quite significant, so especially, for example, in Ethiopia, where risks remain high in spite of, for example, the PSNP. In Tanzania, it's consider chronic poverty itself is considerably lower in this diagram, but this is largely an artifact of a low national poverty line in Tanzania. In contrast, tra transitory escapes as well is a quite a significant phenomenon. In other words, escapes that aren't being converted into sustained escapes. And this is especially the case, which I'll return to in a later, in, Af in our African studies of interests. And sustained escapes then, in turn, is particularly considerable, especially in rural Bangladesh and Cambodia. In other words, in both countries where a significant degree of economic transformation has happened, primarily through labor-intensive manufacturing. And in fact, this achievement of sustained escapes is a useful way of assessing the quality of growth especially from a poverty reduction perspective. And about this quality of growth with regards to our work on sustained escapes, it's several of our findings are quite telling with regards to pro-porous growth. So for one, a key finding from our studies is that agriculture on its own continues to be important in sustaining escapes. And this is even in the case where land holdings have become smaller and even in the case where um, land holdings and farming and agriculture has been more focused on food farmers. So for example, this is seen in rural Kenya on, in the graph on the left where in terms of land holdings, which are then even lower amongst the chronic poor in, spite, uh, in addition to this decrease. And then also in the graph of the, on the right in rural Cambodia in terms of uh, the share of income from crop and livestock. However, what we see from a policy setting is that such farmers typically get very little external support, even though they are critical interventions which can make a huge difference for them. So interventions, for example, um, in terms of state support to smallholder agriculture, but also a consideration for agricultural workers, such as um, with regards to irrigation, with regards to livestock integration, water and soil conservation, value chain developments, and so forth. So agriculture, yes, it contributes to sustained escapes, but it's typically also more prevalent where there's some, some level of diversification within agriculture. So diversification in terms of households um, nurturing certain crops, but then also breeding livestock for stores of value and to protect in t um, as a form of insurance in times of distress and so forth. But more common as a pathway for agriculture to contribute to sustained escapes is when there's agriculture in conjunction with um, typically diversification from agriculture, so agriculture in conjunction with rural non-farm activities or enterprises. And then alongside this um, 
rural non-farm economy then, there's also across studies we see a rising importance to migration. So for example, this life history is one from rural Kenya and it shows John's success in sustaining a poverty escape through migrating and then re-migrating, which in turn then requires, to begin with, a decent level of social capital, which again is often lacking when you look at the chronic poor. So what you see then in the policy scene is with regards to the rural non-farm economy, with regards to migration, the policy environments, there's a relative absence of pol positive policy environments on either aspect. So here specifically, we've identified a, a scope for African countries really to learn from some of the migrant support programs of the Asian countries we've explored, and also with regards to more inclusive urbanization processes as well from Asian counterparts. And overall, with regards to this uh, growth story, what we really see across countries is that the poor progress largely through not necessarily growth from above, given the slow rate of accessible job creation from above, but instead through growth from below. And what we mean through this is growth through agriculture, growth through enterprise development, through migration to town for work, and so forth. And Ultimately, though, while growth from below is quite important, what we see also is quite difficult to foster. So also it should be kept in mind that growth is only part of the story, and it's also often nurtured through inclusive governance and beneficial social inclusion. Now, this inclusive governance and beneficial social inclusion, in turn, requires a degree of social progressive change, as well as a negotiated approach to norm change to overcome discrimination. But reg with regards to who are some of these groups who are being discriminated against, uh, some of our findings highlight that yes, it's a story of gender with social exclusion often higher for women, but it's also a story of um, discrimination against minority groups, discrimination amongst those um, residing in remote regions as well as we see in Nepal, um, where, for example, chronic poverty itself was much higher amongst disadvantaged groups but also higher amongst disadvantaged groups specifically residing in remote regions of Nepal, such as the far west. And as our life history interviewee with Ketan, for example, in Nepal reflected, this is also very much linked to one's chronic poverty status, but more generally poor economic conditions as well. And with regards to the gender uh, side of the story as well, what we see across our studies is a repeated denial of women's access to property. And this has quite strong impoverishing effects as well. So for ex um, it's impoverishing specifically when you consider contextual factors such as statutory and customary laws, which continue to um, provide inadequate protection for divorced women, for separated women, for widowed women. And of course, then, this is a very politically contested issue, especially in patriarchal society. So it's, it's complicating a na this narrative as well. But then on the flip side, what our research also shows is the importance of collaborative relationships in sustaining poverty escapes. So collaborative relationships between husband and wife, but also more broadly amongst family-based kinship networks. And then moving to the policy scene, what we see is that in a separate evaluation we've done on anti-discrimination measures, we find that quotas, reservations, and stipends, and other forms of affirmative action policies can and in fact do often increase the numbers of targeted groups. They increase the numbers of targeted groups in political participation, in education, in labor markets, and so forth. Um, but yet, even in these affirmative action policies, there are certain groups which continue to be neglected, one being, one being persons with disabilities. 
And then specifically, when you, comp when you again challenge this narrative and you look at intersecting inequalities, you see certain groups like, for example, chronically poor women with disabilities, which we found in rural Bangladesh experienced outcomes in terms of receipt of social transfers, in terms of uh, labor market, vulnerable employment, and so forth, which was consistently lower than even chronically poor men with disabilities. So again here, it's really important to not lose sight of gender. So this then, discrimination is one side of the story, but it's also very much related to adverse or incomplete education, uh, inclusion of the poor in human development services. Um, and these services itself could then assist in sustaining escapes, but aren't necessarily to the extent possible because of this incomplete exclusion, incomplete inclusion. And this includes in areas of education and health. Now for time constraints, I'll focus on health, but um, can revisit the education uh, story later as well. And with regards to health, what we see across our country studies is the impoverishing effects of health as almost a universally common source of impoverishment for households. So this often operates on its own or it can operate in combination or in sequence with other shocks. As seen here in this life history that we've undertaken with Rafikul in rural Bangladesh, who first experienced an unsuccessful bribe, but then also this was compounded through a series of health shocks to himself and family members, which depleted his resources. But in contrast, our study of Rwanda has shown that this need not be the case, the impoverishing effect of health. Rwanda is a relative outlier by comparison where the impoverishing effect of health was virtually absent am amongst our life histories. And this was largely on account of its uniquely high health insurance coverage, but also as well as um, due to its improved quality of health services and its referral system as well. So that's in terms of the growth story and inclusive governance, but even when you have pro-porous growth, even when you have social beneficial social inclusion and inclusive governance, the reality today of climate change often means that we have to think in new ways then within risk-informed development, with a focus on the poorest though often being absent in these discussions. So there's of course a large impact of, a negative impact of disasters, a direct impact on preventing sustained escapes, which I won't go into, but there's also more complicated indirect impacts. So what, so for example here, the impacts of changing climate conditions on, um, and its effect on conflict as evidenced in our studies through the worsening pastoral farmer conflicts. This is seen uh, in the Sahel, for example, in our study on Niger, but also in Kenya, also in Tanzania. This life history specifically sh is one where a chronically poor individual, Taboo, was already chronically poor, already quite well below the poverty line, but then she lost her farm, she lost her crops, she lost her home and her belongings as well following conflicts. And ultimately had to, her, the situation was such that she had to return home to her birth family assetless. So this is part of the story, but then also in these settings, conflict-related theft is also quite common in our studies. And this is particularly so for female-headed households and for older household heads who are more vulnerable to asset-related theft in terms of livestock, farm, and business assets more generally. So again here, important to not lose sight of the gender dimension. And as noted, then climate also interacts with conflict in very complex ways, which if you consider this graph, what this graph shows is the numbers of households which have either become impoverished over the period or experienced uh, transitory compared to a sustained escape. 
And what this graph shows is a high degree of negative poverty dynamics in certain countries. So where this degree of impoverishment much overpaces the degree of sustained escapes from poverty. And the countries where you see this high negative impoverishment ratio is specifically in places with a strong disaster conflict nexus and also relatively inadequate pro-porous growth policies and initiatives. So in other words, the three pillars highlighted today as being quite critical in addressing zero poverty and thus really emphasizing the need for this joined up dialogue which we're proposing today. Thank you. Fantastic. Just beat me to saying um, that we should probably move on to the speakers. That's, <coughs> that's a really good overview of a very large and complex body of research on, on dynamics. Um, an excellent introduction, and I think then if we turn to Whale to talk about um, the, the climate aspect of, of these trends. Sure. Uh, <coughs> hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak at ODI. ODI has always been uh, a very important source for information. Even in the climate movement, we always reference the 2015 or 14 report by ODI that clearly link climate change and poverty in a very concrete way, saying that by 2030, uh, 780 million people will be put back into extreme poverty because of climate change, so almost negating all the benefits that can come out uh, of you know, uh, the growth um, and uh, removing people from poverty. And this is only by 2030. The thing with climate change, the impacts we see now are only going to increase year by year. And uh, eventually, as we all know, and as the International Panel on Climate Change latest report on the 1.5 says that, you know, if we go beyond the 1.5 temperature increase, we are going to hit certain limits that we cannot deal with. Uh, and uh, it will be already over for some communities where the concept of leaving no one behind will be lost. And we will leave. We have no choice but leave people behind. And this can happen and the, if we continue at this rate in five to six years. So it would be too late. Uh, <coughs> and the threshold of two degrees warming, which we thought before is safe, now is not acceptable anymore. Um, so the IPCC report talks about at a two degree temperature increase, we'll lose 100% of our coral reefs which is not important as a beautiful place to go dive in. And look at the colorful fish there, but also how it connects to the marine, rest of the marine ecosystem and can trigger collapse of all marine resources, which around 2 billion people depend on in the world. Um, and uh, the IPCC report also has certain limits. Uh, conflict has been uh, mentioned uh, uh, as already seeing how climate change contributing to conflicts in Africa, but also in the Middle East, including the Syrian revolution. There's a lot of reports linking it. So with the current impacts, which we as a climate movement see as manageable at the moment, uh, you, you know, the far away conflict impacts hasn't been really studied well. Um, so if you listen to what uh, uh, Sir Nicholas Stern said uh, way uh, 10 years ago, even more, that climate change impacts uh, would be worse than World War One, World War Two, and the Great Depression combined. Um, so basically, the geopolitical uh, dimension of climate change is not well researched yet. Uh, but um, those who did look at it did believe that uh, climate change can easily trigger World War Three. Um, so the IPCC science looks at the physical 
and the natural science and how it impacts certain parts of the world but doesn't really combine them together and what they can achieve uh, um, at the end. And that's why many individuals believe that climate change is an existential issue that will lead to the collapse of human civilization. And, and here we're talking about temperatures in the three degrees range, uh, potentially. Um, so the room to act is very short uh, in the coming five to six years. Um, and, um, you know, the, there will be certain tough decisions that the development or the anti-poverty uh, movement needs to look at, which, uh, which will be hard decisions. Already even uh, companies started to look at, for example, investing in certain countries. So in the next five, six years, uh, the community <coughs> needs to decide if we should actually make any uh, effort to invest in low-lying areas or countries even, such as Marshall Islands, Maldives, and others. These countries, in five, six years, it's over for them and trying to remove people in poverty there and create some growth in those countries is a waste of money. Because, you know, you need to create opportunities in other places that those people can migrate to. So these are tough uh, decisions that need to be made and not easy to mention, but it's a, uh, it's a reality that we need to face. Yes, it's a big failure of our species in dealing with this problem, uh, but at the end of the day, we want sustainable growth and we need to ensure that what investment we, we do to remove people from poverty um, is actually, it's not a volatile issue, but it's something that is sustainable and uh, continuous. Um, and, uh, and migration, obviously, uh, it's, a, it's a big issue. And this is the problem with climate change that it is fueling uh, the politics that actually prevents us from acting further. So migration has led to the rise of the far right uh, uh, the far right doesn't believe in climate change, doesn't want to act on climate change, creating more migration, fueling even further the rise of the far right. So we might go into this loop because of climate change that will uh, destroy all the work that the climate or the development movement is doing. Thank you very much, Wael. Um, if we pass now to Andy, who might take that as a framing, um, for thinking about national strategies and, I suppose, what the international system can do as well to, to help governments think through how do you promote a, a model of inclusive economic development, inclusive economic transformation that benefits the poorest but can be operating within these increasingly narrow bounds that are set by um, the global climate. Okay, I was going to make a few comments on, on uh, growth, agriculture, and gender, and th that's what I would focus my comments on. Now, uh, we've heard about growth already. We know that growth is usually thought about at a macro level, about increasing output and so on. And we know the story about growth being beneficial for poverty reduction and NVIDIA's presentation, helping the sustained escape from poverty, even if inequality might increase sometimes as well. Growth seems to be important for poverty reduction. Growth is also important because it gives revenue to governments, which potentially allows governments to do things. Now, what governments do with that revenue is, uh, is entirely another issue. Now, but 
growth needs, stability of growth also matters as well. Growth can fluctuate quite a lot over time, and that's very costly. So you've good growth one year and low growth another, and that's really quite costly. And I think we particularly need to think about where this is difficult in the fragile and conflict-affected states, where in unstable growth may be particularly important. Growth is certainly needed. Stability and growth is certainly needed in those environments. But that's where, where how to establish some sort of growth process in those environments, I think, is, is very important. And of course, peace fundamentally and uh, political stability are, are, is fundamentally a basis for that. Good, good governance, good macro management, and all of those things matter as well. So we do need to, you know, I think we do need to always think about the places where it's difficult, to where it's most difficult to tackle poverty, and that's certainly fragile and conflict-affected states. Now, when we think about growth, we shouldn't think about it just in macro ways. We should also think about individuals being able to increase their, their, own, their own productions, their own income, and make their situation better, focusing particularly on the, on, on the poor. And that's a sort of a different set of questions. That's about how to be more productive in your agriculture, in your business, how to access better jobs, how to get, get better services. Conflict and fragility, they'll matter there as well. And those things may very much affect people, stop people, being able to achieve better outcomes. Even things like domestic violence potentially stop people from achieving better outcomes. Uh, second point was agriculture, which Vidya talked about. Uh, I was also involved in a study on, multi-country study on growth, on, on growth and poverty reduction in Africa, where we looked at 16 countries, uh, published by UNU Wider in Helsinki. Agriculture was hugely one of the important stories. The countries that did well in agriculture were the countries that did better in terms of poverty reduction, often in terms of growth as well, but certainly in terms of poverty reduction. Agriculture is hugely important. Now, at the same time, governments don't place a lot of priority in agriculture. They sort of want to move their countries out of agriculture into doing other things. But what jobs are people going to do what are the jobs that people are able to do? Agriculture is still going to be really important for a long time to come. There's huge challenges in agriculture. Uh, risk, of course, is always a challenge in agriculture. And with, if, and with increasing climate variability, that potentially becomes more... That's, that's a more serious issue. Land, access, secure access to land. Access to infrastructure... Uh, and so on. All of these things are important. But if governments are not putting high priority, often not putting very much, very high pri priority in agriculture and addressing these issues, then I think that's potentially important for poverty reduction. The issue of land is particularly, it often has important gender dimensions, which takes me really to the third point I wanted to talk about, which is about gender. And actually, I think there's quite strong interactions between gender and growth, actually. Uh, uh, there was a, a research study a prog program recently on uh, growth opportunities for women. And part of what they looked at was the relationship between gender inequality and growth. And broadly speaking, higher gender inequality was associated with less good growth performance. And better growth performance often helped to reduce gender inequality. So there's a sort of synergy there between those things. 
If one looks at what's happening in countries, there are some positive messages in terms of gender. If you look at education, gender gaps in education are reducing significantly. Now, there's all kinds of quality issues for sure, but gender gaps in education are reducing. Gender gaps in work mostly are not. So women may be more educated, but still don't seem to be able to access better work opportunities. So what's going on there? What's the story? I think one very big story is time and just the time that women need to spend, not just in reproductive tasks in the household, but also, but also to have time left for work. And I think that's a real challenge. Early marriage, early childbirth. Most countries now have laws against people getting married before the age of 18. Are those respected? For sure, those are. The, 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 there are huge numbers of, of violations of that, and that, I think, is really an important issue as well, this sort of early marriage, early childbirth. Now, again, governance issues come out as being important there. Many other things I could say, but let me stop there. That's fantastic. Thank you, Andy. Um, if we pass on to um, Yelka, do you want to pick up on some yeah, of those things? I'll just... Um, Pick up where you ended, so that's great. Okay. Um, I hope. Wasn't that? <laughs> but it seems to work, perhaps. So I'll. I, I mean, I wanted to uh, take as a starting point that poverty is gendered clearly, um, and that women are more vulnerable than others, than men, to small and big changes in uh, in income and livelihoods. Um, uh, uh, and increasingly caused by climate change, but also in, uh, caused by other uh, dynamics, because of the caretaking responsibility uh, on the, on the one hand that are very vast, not only children but um, um, ill family members and so on. But very often they are responsible for small agricultural activities uh, around the house, which feed families as well, and hence water and energy. Uh, for household use, and that alongside uh, income generating. So it's, it's uh, a heavy workload that, that is immediately affected by small changes. Um, so I wanted to raise a couple of additional questions related to that uh, relationship between poverty, inequality, gender and climate change that seem relevant to this discussion. So I think that many of the entrenched inequalities that make women and others um, um, more vulnerable to, to, to poverty than, 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 than some other population groups in any specific context uh, are, are very much grounded in those deep-seated uh, intersecting inequalities, which differ according to context and place, of course, if that involves um, uh, uh, ethnicity or race or sexuality or disability, uh, although disability is always intersecting with um, issues such as poverty and, and gender. Uh, religion, in some cases, sexuality, of course, as well. Now, the poorest and the most vulnerable um, are not intrinsically poor and vulnerable. Women are not poor because they're women, no? There's, it's not a natural disposition, but because they're prevented from doing so and what they need to do to overcome poverty and get ahead. And I think that's very important. Although we know all that, we don't necessarily uh, think about it in that way. So there are cultural and political practices and normative frameworks which tend to naturalize those intersecting inequalities. Women are poor because they're women. Um, but those hold people back from getting loans, from getting access to or taking control over land, 
enhance from growing food, um, from accessing water, energy sources, accessing decent education and labor markets, and indeed crossing borders, increasingly important in, uh, in the current climate, of course. So uh, women are not vulnerable to poverty and abuse because they're women, but because of a male-dominated society that thinks they are weak and or undeserving and either need protection and hence be hidden away, or they can be exploited. Um, but at the same time, I think that we need to realize that women around the world survive and raise children in what are often extremely difficult circumstances and really adverse circumstances against all odds, with little to no resources and even often with active resistance from society and its customs that insist on reinforcing those intersecting inequalities. Uh, often violently, um, we need to, um, uh, the, the global numbers for violence against women stand at 30% of all women globally experience violence in their lifetime, and that is an average for the whole world, so you need to um, recognize that in many parts of the world that stand at 70% of women experiencing violence in their lifetime, including in large parts of uh, uh, East Africa and Latin America. And still these women, they work, they feed themselves, they feed others, they make sure children go to school or go to work uh, and that family members are being cared for. That is strength, not weakness. No. Um, so I guess one of the questions that I want to raise is how can we support women in this effort and how can we undergird that strength that, um, they, um, that, that they so clearly show and what does that mean for an inclusive growth agenda? And, um, and so in inclusive growth, um, there, there are a couple of very straightforward um, um, paradigms that are currently um, globally um, promoted uh, and particularly targeting poor women, income generating activities and social transfers. And I know ODI has done extensive researches, particularly to social transfers as well, and as also has been discussed by Vidya. But in reality, a lot of these um, income-generating activities do not reduce the caretaking roles, as Andy already mentioned. And the social transfers have tremendous potential in terms of poverty reduction, but not in terms of inequality reduction, as Andy mentioned. Actually, very often these social transfers reproduce these inequalities because they reinforce the maternal role of women and further naturalize those roles. So they make women's lives, to a certain extent, more complicated, even if it reduces household poverty. Again, you can see that as a strength of what women might achieve, but I think we also need to recognize the, the difficult corner that women are being um, uh, pushed in. Um, so um, uh, th these inequalities, these are, are reproduced who, through gendered interventions that target women based on perceived notions of their roles in society without aiming to unsettle those roles, without aiming to actually address the structures of inequalities. Um, so one of the main issues that I think needs addressing is the overall gender division of labor in societies to make women less responsible for caretaking and men more responsible for caretaking and thereby make women and girls less vulnerable to poverty, abuse and climate change. So let me take that gender anal analysis to a slightly uh, different level and look at women's agency faced with climate change 
and poverty rather than their vulnerability in the hope that that might help us think about the potential for governance and inclusive uh, growth. So much of the climate change problems um, in, in, in large parts of Latin America, Africa, and Asia are apart from being felt on, on sort of daily life, agriculture, food, water, etc., etc., but are related to broader environmental problems and labor, for example, in the extractive in, uh, industry. Yeah? A lot of people increasingly live from the extractive in industry, men who go work in mines, but that also very often means that there's a conflict over land and water because extractive industries pollute uh, sources of water and hence affect local uh, agricultural, agric agriculture. So uh, these are very, uh, very often very damaging for local environments, including water provision. Now, the interesting bit that I wanted to draw your attention to is the activism around these issues. There's a lot of resistance from um, uh, communities, uh, from community groups, from um, uh, uh, agricultural unions or, or, or um, agricultural groups at local level. And a lot of that resistance is being led by women. And again, there's a logic in that because they experience that, that, that pollution, that everyday pollution of land and water, Every day in preparing food and taking care of children, they see the children and the elderly getting ill because of the pollution and so on. So they're, also, so they're literally on the forefront of those very localized battles over land and uh, water. Um, but as we know from Latin America, which is what I know best, women's leadership is, um, is, is threatened first by the male structures of community leadership. There's research looking at uh, 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 these uh, social conflicts, as they call, call them, over land, uh, which shows that um, um, w women do head these battles, but when there's a community decision to be made, then it's the men who speak up and who try to push women out of those decision makings. International corporations often employ paramilitaries to control their land or kick people out of the land that they want and use them to intimidate people. And thirdly, uh, actual states are very often working hand in hand with international corporations um, and, and creating a hostile environment for human rights defenders, both very locally, these women farmers who defend their own land, as well as towards national level NGOs who, who very often go in alliance with those local uh, human rights defenders, which is for women um, um, uh, has a particular um, uh, sexist um, level as well of violence and intimidation. Women get killed and harassed in 2016, a, a widely publicized case of Berta Cáceres in Honduras. There are many more cases of women human rights defenders on the continent and beyond who are being intimidated and indeed killed. The global current political turn uh, uh, is to the right, uh, is conservative, misogynist, violence, and very much anti-environment, um, as was previously mentioned. Now, on the one hand, that is very concerning, and it's, it's very uh, similar. That alliance seems, uh, if, you, if you know how international extractive industries co co uh, um, operate, it, it seems a similar type of, of masculinist short-term thinking um, that, that rules those non-interventions. Okay, very briefly, what does that mean in terms of policy and in recognizing or supporting women's uh, 
agency and women's strength in these battles. Um, uh, I think that it's very important to recognize and work with human rights defenders and, and recognize women's active roles in this. There's a, a huge potential for solidarity networks, and they exist, of course, both at a regional level, national levels, and international, between local community human rights defenders and broader civil society movements. There's a, very much a need for pressuring states. Uh, governance agendas, I'm afraid, have to be political and um, need to be looking at land rights, at uh, consultation over land use, protect indigenous and agricultural lands of uh, especially indigenous communities. Um, so to conclude, um, um, the, the women do not need empowerment, but they need access to power. And that means two things. Uh, they need um, to be taken seriously, listened to, uh, uh, it need, and that means uh, plat giving platforms for political voice, uh, being heard, yeah? and secondly, uh, the, 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 the relations of power need to be changed by looking and actually working towards changes in the division of labor between men and women. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's uh, three really, really helpful sort of perspectives on this and as I say if we could now turn to Danielle from ActionAid to think about how would we I mean a lot of this is about global or national level policy but in terms of specific intervention specific programming approaches how would we apply some of these kind of connections um, in, in designing and implementing a program well, first of all, um, thank you for, for having me today um, and to present a, a more maybe a more practical uh, approach to, to linking these themes. I think it speaks to the need to, to link them and to think in a less siloed approach to the different elements that we've touched upon today in that every one of the speakers here has actually drawn on gender or on climate change and, and has already been, you know, kind of linking those, those themes together. Last year, uh, ActionAid worked on a report called Double Jeopardy, which was our attempt to, to look at the way in which women's economic uh, inequality and violence against women and girls are intrinsically linked, both as cause and effect of each other. So a uh, never-ending cycle. Um, and and we we looked primarily through the as ActionAid likes to do, and and from a feminist perspective of our, on our research, looked at the stories of women and girls, and and, and looked at those and analysed those um, to to find and and to draw the 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 links from from that. One story was from Uganda, um, and I think this is one of the. Um, easiest stories to demonstrate the, the links between poverty and, and Vogue. Um, I, one of the women that we work, in, work with was experiencing violence and wasn't able to, uh, to, to leave a domestically abusive home. Uh, this went on for, for many years until there was an intervention which was to work in a cooperative and to link that particular woman to a women's rights organisations where, where she could claim her rights and also analyse 
the issues within uh, her community that were contributing to violence, such as uh, a lack of lighting within a market, uh, a lack of uh, police presence and the police not being trained or able to access justice, so women were not able to access justice. And then on a, uh, and then she was eventually, thankfully, able to, to leave her, her partner because of that economic intervention. But on a, on a more macro level, um, ActionAid also talks about the way in, in which gender-responsive public services, or the lack thereof, contribute to violence against women and girls and, and economic inequality of women. So when you look at, you know, we talk about collecting tax, for example, and the way in which tax needs to be collected, but when you look at Uganda's policy, um, in terms of its domestic violence law, which is fantastic, and women's rights organisations were very much at the heart of that being put through, uh, the government has yet to fund a domestic violence shelter or, or, or work. It's, it's still being funded by uh, INGOs. And so when we're talking about this, we have to bring in gender-responsive public services into the conversation because the fact is it's not just about the economy it's about the social norms which seep into every decision that is made by an organization and an institution including the government so um that's kind of one perspective um the other kind of uh, i draw on another case story from brazil where um uh, girls living in a particular area where there was uh, a building taking place in order to grow the economy were deeply impacted by uh, influx of uh, migrant workers, uh, lack of uh, access to, to the streets at night because there was no street lighting anymore. And that in this case story, the girl was not able to access education as a result of that. And that has an impact on her life for the you know for the potentially for a very very long time and so one of the conclusions that we're we're kind of drawing from this is that it we need to look micro and macro but it's really important to 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 really look at, at trade issues as well as um as well as everything else and i think that's something that hasn't necessarily come out today that the impact of trade um, and, and, and building and longer term kind of economic growth has to have within it um, short, medium and long term impact assessments for women and girls and other groups who experience inequality. ActionAid has also started to work on um, looking at the interrelationship between climate resilient sustainable agriculture, violence against women and girls, and unpaid care work. And I think that it was really great to hear unpaid care work coming out. And there is a desperate need for that to be recognised within GDP. But for most women, time spent on unpaid care work is disproportionately high compared to men. And there is a definite link between that and violence against women and girls. Um, time poverty limits women's opportunity to increase sustainable productivity and better access markets. As I said before, it, it decreases their ability to leave violent relationships. Um, and so the coercion and control that women face because they are not able to access uh, the kind of economic productivity that, that they need um, means that they are stuck in that situation and it's a never-ending cycle. 
Um, so we're really glad that unpaid co-work has been recognised in the SDGs, but it's not being implemented on the ground. And we found that in another report, which we released this year, um, which was called, um, We Know More Than You Think We Do. Um, and, and this really revealed to us the way in which the SDGs are being kind of implemented and talked about at the surface level, but actually on the ground, those women's rights organisations are not being given the space and opportunity to, to, to talk about things and to create change within their community, uh, which could actually have an impact on the, on the SDGs. With relation to the conversations that we've been having or the presentations that you've been having, um, I think the, uh, I think kind of for me, listening to you, some things that came out were that um, we perhaps need to think a little bit more about uh, the feminization of migration as well and the impact that climate change has on that and the impact that then that has on the uh, value chain. And, uh, you know, you look at places like Bangladesh, where uh, there's a lot of rural to urban migration, a lot of young women are engaging in work. And then because of their precarious employment, the violence and abuse that they're experiencing in those garment factories are, have a massive effect. Um, the addition of the uh, feminization of the gig economy. Uh, and then for me, I'm a ex-aid worker, so the conflict perspective is, is particularly important, particularly as climate change increases conflict. And I think when we're looking at gender-responsive public services, if they're not there already and we're not working on those, we're including social norms in the development sphere or arena, then when it comes to humanitarian um, contexts developing then the women peace and security agenda is already weakened um, and um, I think that that needs to be something that we we really look at and trying to include in here um, because we can talk in the humanitarian field about women peace and security but the development and the humanitarian nexus uh, particularly for women and girls' rights, are, are, are deeply entwined and we have to really think about that as something that comes into this conversation as well. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I might just put a few quick questions to the panel and then we'll, we'll throw it open to the, the audience. Um, and, well, maybe if I start with you, why, why is it important to consider these issues together and how... How practically can we bring climate change into these conversations at the at the national level and at the subnational level? Because I, I think there's a problem that people see this as a global problem. It's a sort of global tragedy of the commons. It can be hard for people to find you know some traction on it when it comes to national governments thinking about what they do inside their own borders. So how how can governments, how can social organisations find ways to bring climate climate change? mitigation, adaptation into into the policies they come up with. Yeah, definitely. I think what needs to happen is that climate change needs to go away from the environment box because uh, first it's not an environmental issue, it's an existential issue. And we have to know that really we're talking about, if you want to compare it to anything, it's if, if a big meteor is coming to hit Earth. And now the climate impacts we're seeing are those uh, debris that come out. But you know, at the end, it's going to hit Earth if we don't stop it. 
and I don't understand. I mean, I, I, I wasn't a climate activist. I was a feminist, I was a human rights activist, and you know, when, when there was civil war in Lebanon, the, we never were able to talk about any of these issues. I never heard of gender issues. I never heard of human rights. First 16 years of my, born in Lebanon, still living in Lebanon, and for the first 16 years of my life, any issue, human rights, social rights, anything, were not on the table. You're in civil war, you just wanted to survive. And climate change, we're going to take it to that, to that space where any other movement will not be able to talk to anyone about our issues. I think we need to, everyone for us, for all the, uh, all the issues we work on, put effort because there is a tipping point. There's a climate tipping point, but also there is a tipping point for the solution where we reach peak emissions and rapidly decline. And we're close to it, but we need everyone to put their hearts into it. So. Just like now, I cannot work in an organization without, um, you know, anti-harassment policy, right? It's not acceptable for any organization. It should become immediately, immediately unacceptable for any organization not to run on 100% renewable energy, have a complete fleet on electric vehicle, and so on. It, you should have this in, in everyone's organization, going to net zero emissions as fast as possible. And the minute, I mean, it, the, the movements are becoming aware of it. The trade unions now have a huge program on climate change saying there's no jobs on a dead planet. The Vatican put it as a priority issue. This, you know, you look at the Vatican as number one issue is anti-poverty. Historically, that's what supposedly be working on. Now climate change is a tough issue. It has to become a tough issue for all of us. Uh, because, you know, to change everything, and that's what is required to solve climate change, to change everything, you need everyone. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work if just the climate people work on it. And, and we need to, and we also understand uh, as a climate movement, and that's why we, we don't talk about species. We don't talk about what happens to the polar bear. You never hear now any climate activist talking about polar bear. Uh, uh, it is a hu human crisis. And we know that if, if you're poor, you're not going to care about climate change. You're going to think about what you're going to eat today or tomorrow. And we, know, we need to address that. So solving poverty is important for us, for people to care about climate change and think about it. So we're very interlinked. And, and we realize this as a climate movement. And you know, we were pushing uh, during the SDGs the other goals as much as we were pushing the climate goal. Um, but again, it's really hard to you know, okay, what's now big on the anti-poverty agenda for us as a climate movement to engage in? Because we're all stressed on time. We all have our programs to work on. Um, but I think if we do, between now and the next three years, a concentrated push to trigger a tipping point that would lead, because, you know, the fossil fuel industry now is at the verge. We think it's the coal, it's almost one, the fight against coal. Uh, and they're tied to a string to the oil and gas industry, and we just need to push them over the cliffs. <laughs> uh, kind of a, <laughs> a metaphor uh, to really create the change. Um, we already see some national um, fossil fuel companies deciding to switch completely to renewable energy. Ostrid in, uh, in Denmark is a uh, big example where they completely shifted to 100% renewable energy. Um, but yeah, this is, this is what is required, achieving 100% renewable energy by 2050, 
which is very short time, and the trigger for that needs to happen in the coming few years. So uh, there is a big moment happening in 2020, I think, where the communities can come together. It's a big year for the SDGs, and it's a big year for the climate. Um, and it's a big year of election in the United States, which uh, I think everyone cares about. Uh, mm -hmm. At the moment, we are completely campaigning on elections. So for us, climate change is an electoral uh, issue, that this is where it's won. Uh, unfortunately, what happened in Brazil, and it's not done yet, but it looks really <coughs> scary for all our causes in Brazil. Uh, um, and it can be triggered easily in every country. We shouldn't take what we have for granted. Um, <coughs> it's very fragile what we have, and climate change is going to make it worse. We were talking about the Gulf Stream and how much of it gets shut down, how it will affect Western Europe and can create a huge crisis, political crisis, uh, in Western Europe. So it's not far from home at all. We've seen the migration, what, how they shifted uh, the elections here and how it affected the, the politics. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that's, that's basically it. Take climate change as a core uh, anti-poverty issue, that we need to solve it, to solve poverty. And every institution needs to have a clear program. First, converting the institution, but campaigning to achieve 100% renewable energy as fast as possible. Thank you. Could you just very briefly, thinking about how then you do put that into practice in low and middle income countries where we work, and how do you get over the siloization, the fact that there are different ministries responsible for different bits of this, this puzzle? I mean, I, I think <coughs> Ethiopia is interesting, for example, in that it's very highly vulnerable, um, and it has quite a lot of renewable potential. How do you get countries around the world to, to try and you know, get leadership and get collective solutions across government to, to that kind of problem? Okay, thank you. Well, okay, so just to get back to basics first, when we're talking about poverty, everyone knows, most people know here today that it still remains predominantly a rural phenomenon. And within that rural phenomenon, much of the poor still remain primarily engaged in agriculture. So, for example, um, as one example of how people could, um, from these different line ministries, from these different organizations and interest base, could come together, just looking at land as an example. So we know from our country studies that it's a contextual driver. It can be a dependence on land, can be a risk factor. We've seen this in Kenya, um, where it's not being intensively farmed, but then it can also be conducive to sustained escapes, as we see in Uganda. But at the same time, this context of risks more generally overall makes us consider what can be done to reduce agriculture or land-related risks. And as a pro-porous growth measure, this then draws to draws to importance, for example, measures such as controlling inflation. Um, this relates to food prices, agriculture input prices, which have impoverishing effects, especially for those near the poverty line. So far we've been talking about the poor and sustaining escapes, but oftentimes the near poor itself are very vulnerable to falling back in the po into poverty. So it draws consideration to this group as well. But then for synergies and sustained improvements over time, it's not just about controlling inf inflation or preventing transitory escapes for agriculture households. It's also important, as well notes, to consider climate change initiatives. And this is because oftentimes for the poor, for example, even if they have assets like livestock to act as an insurance, there's not, there tends to be less of a provision for drought except for livestock accumulation itself. 
this is a climate issue. And then relatedly, you have weather unpredictability, which means that there's really an urgent need for investment, adaptation, climate smart agriculture, irrigation improvements as noted, so forth. But then when you bring in the inclusive governance angle, the reality is that countries are faced with budget constraints. And for example, um, we recently found in Kenya that elite interests, um, we, through our work, has recently been emphasized in Kenya that elite interests can often really get in the way. Now, electoral competition in Kenya is supposed to loosen some of these constraints over time, but at the same time, if politicians continue to manipulate ethnic, ethnically or other identity-based constituencies to get into power, then there might not be a rapid impact. And a rapid impact is exactly what we need, as Wales outlining. So it's really a question of bringing these together to contribute to poverty eradication. Yes. Thank you. Okay, um, so I think we've got about half an hour um, to take questions from the people in the room, anybody online. Um, who, can I start this side of the room? One there, 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 okay. Um, could I just ask that you, you give us your name and which organization you work for? Sure, my name's Emma and I work for USPG. We are an, a 300 year old Anglican mission agency. <coughs> so my question is with everything you were discussing about climate change and its impact on conflict, poverty, violence against women. With everything that we've discussed, is anybody working on or does anybody have any thoughts as to how to draw that together to lobby with the UK government, particularly coming up to the high level political forum in 2019 where they are planning, as far as I know still, to report for the first time? Thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Amy Neverson from Plan International UK. My question's quite similar, actually. Um, we've heard a lot about intersecting vulnerabilities and multiple conversion factors. Um, and we've tried to look at how you move away from siloed programming. So I'm wondering what DFID's approach is, particularly to sort of translating this very extensive research and evidence into policy, and then how that would then translate into programming. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's on. Um, <clears throat> Andrew Long from DFID. I'm not going to answer that question. Um, I wanted like to ask a question, if I may. Um, I mean, it's, I think there's probably some uh, common common uh, concern in the room, actually. I mean, it's a sort of there's a kind of an unvirtuous circle in all this, if you ask me, and that is that you know developing country governments desperately need to invest in poverty reduction and make the right kind of sort of social policy investments um, on inclusion or on gender responsive I mean they need to invest essentially in order to address poverty reduction um, but they also need to generate income in order to be able to invest and so the question that I'm sort of puzzled with is how do we get elites to kind of invest in the to to make the right kind of growth investments which are both going to be uh, inclusive of those who you know we, we're concerned with but also at the same time not rush for the first dollar but look at the longer term impacts of of the growth strategy in reference to you know uh, addressing the climate change concerns it strikes me that there's a there's a disincentive amongst elites to actually take that course so I wonder if the panel um, you could reflect a bit on you know what's the narrative here and do we really have an evidence base to suggest or to say you know definitively to to governments and elites 
Um, if you make the following kinds of investments and you make your growth strategies green, you can get a return, but your return will provide you with enough investment in order to be able to get out of poverty and not just a return you know, on the bottom line, as it were. on a host of development challenges, how to draw this together to lobby the UK government in, um, in uh, sort of a high-level panel. So who would like to take... I'll look at the lobbying organisation <laughs> or, or um, advocacy. advocacy. Uh, how, would you, how would you go about sort of trying to bring this together in relatively simple messages to the UK government about what what we should take into UN processes? It's a, it's a big question. <laughs> um, I think for, for me, um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a programmer, so it's slightly different. But the, um, for me, one of the things that we're definitely thinking about is the way that we can work on women's rights, as an example, by cross-movement building. So, you know, in, women experience life not as uh, only women women are multiple things and therefore you're able and hopefully we'll be able to work with different movements um, to talk about women's rights and then uh, you know back and forth and, and kind of collaborate to create change we know that women's rights organizations are are primarily um, or are very very highly effective in creating policy change and so engaging civil society and working together I know it's a very simplistic thing to say but actually getting us all around a table talking and creating those policy points that um, kind of take forward our joint positions would be the first step I would say. Thank you very much. Um, if anybody anyone on the panel wants to react to anybody else just let me know but otherwise I'll in the interest of speed and covering as many questions as we can, I'll um, I'll do a bit of arbitrary sort of parceling them out. So, um, okay, I'll try and address how is Diffid trying to translate this into connections. Um, I mean, it is hard. There are some agencies that are slightly single purpose, um, and that brings advantages of specialisation and all the rest. Diffid tends to cover a fairly broad waterfront which means we, we are, I think, a little prone to siloization occasionally. Um, there, are, there are ways we can uh, tackle that. We're still a fairly decentralized organization, so quite a lot happens at the country office level. Um, there's quite a lot of autonomy to look at the context and think, okay, what is the important issue here? But to be able to draw down on different cadres of specialists, including climate advisors, including um, economists and social development advisors looking at poverty. So getting those kind of relationships right between professional skills, streams and experience and applying it in context, that's important. And, you know, periodically we go through these rounds of trying to take a, a medium-term look back at trends and patterns in a country and a medium-term look forward and think, what, what should we be nudging our programme, nudging our policy, lobbying or advocacy positions with the government towards? 
and so we're going through a round of that at the moment and, and thinking about it. And then we're, we're sort of throwing it open for peer review. So each of these country development diagnostics is being looked at by um, 10 to 15 volunteers. You get volunteered. Um, and I think that helps to, to get a fairly holistic look at it. The, the challenge is then not to let it expand from 10 pages to 200. Um, you know, we need something concise. But the, I think off the top of my head, so that would be some of the things that we're, we're doing to try and make sure that we bring a climate and a gender and a, um, you know, a, a economic transformation lens to the various things we're doing. Um, how to get elites to make long-term investments, you know, how to, how to nudge incentives. Um, I'd like to yeah, say absolutely. a couple of things about that. Um, it's a very difficult question, A, because it's political and how do you influence politics of what is not your country, no? Um, but on the other hand, there have been social investments that have been developed uh, at a global level that have been successfully implemented elsewhere. And there are plenty of examples of that. Conditional cash transfers being the, the most recent one, which has been very rapidly expanded um, in all range of countries and have done some good and some not good. But uh, in terms of poverty reduction, it certainly has been successful. And there are, in, depending on where you look, but again, I'll go to Peru, as that is what I know best. Um, there's a very competent bureaucracy who is imp designing and implementing that following um, uh, expertise elsewhere in the world uh, and, and doing that as best as they can. Now, in case of environmental decisions, and uh, for, uh, Peru has at everyone, in, in any moment in any time between 200 and 300 social conflicts over land with extractive industry, with international organizations and the state, local communities fighting the state or, or, or international cooperation over the land. Now, these are problematic in, in, in great part because they're not listened to, because there's no, there's no conversation going on and so on, no? Um, and I think that um, 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 our own governments have a responsibility in keeping international corporations in check. One of the main um, 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 culprits of, of polluting and, and, and aggressively um, establishing extractive industries in parts of Latin America is Canada, contemporary Canada which has this, this, this image of being very social democratic and very um, uh, humanitarian, but in terms of extractive industries, it's not holding its corporations to account. So I think that, that, that there is a job there for, for Western governments to put pressure upon, upon the behavior of international corporations that, that rule under or that, that establish um, uh, mines uh, and extractive in industries elsewhere. Um, so buy-in of international corporations, pressure upon um, uh, World Bank is 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 is, is uh, very good in putting pressure upon governments in in in, in promoting certain uh, social investments, and and uh, uh, I don't see why they couldn't do the same in terms of green investments. The problem is, I doubt if they have they, they currently have that interest in doing that. There's there's. There's a disconnect there, as I'm sure you can talk about better than I do. Well, well yeah, the, the donor countries 
uh, donor versus recipient country discussions when they negotiate. I think donor countries should have standards in relation now that fossil fuel investment is not acceptable because it's actually not removing people out of poverty. It's going to put on the long term more people in poverty than out of poverty. Uh, just like, you know, you can't invest in drugs. It can alleviate some poverty, create other problems. It has to be the same kind of thinking that it's not acceptable at all. We need to reach that point. We see still Japan investing in coal. We now the Belt Road Initiative of China, if by itself gets implemented, will blow the two degrees uh, limit. Uh, so that's only one country for overseas investments. Um, the World Bank has, and we were been focusing on the World Bank because luckily a lot of other uh, ad, uh, development banks follow the World Bank rules. So the World Bank, there's a very successful campaign, the Big Shift campaign, which Christian Aid and us and a few others are leading, did manage to now, it's not accepted anymore coal for the World Bank to invest in coal. The Kosovo project has been canceled recently, I think last week. And, uh, um, you know, investment and... <laughs> which is funny, the, the World Bank was financing extraction, oil extraction, and now they're going to stop in 2019, but they still do want to invest in gas and, uh, uh, and uh, maybe oil projects. And this, is, this needs to reach a point. It, in the World Bank, it's harder even than bilateral. Bilateral, the donors say, I will not give the money if it's not in renewable energy or low-carbon development. The World Bank, it's a, there's a board of recipient and... Uh, um, um, donor countries. So, but we are able to change the rules there, which will affect other development banks. Uh, and I think what also helps a lot is that the rules of development certain project should involve uh, civil society engagement in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, many donor countries do have put rules that where's the input of civil society on this uh, and some uh, UN agencies as well, uh, but they could be more effective. Why? Because in many developing countries, the governments, as we know, do not look at the best interests of their people. Because if they look at the best interests of their people, uh, so they come and say, we need to develop growth, and this investment is, we think, is our best way uh, to alleviate poverty. Uh, uh, but if you go on the street, uh, or the people, they, the people don't agree this. And the donor countries, or in certain rooms, they don't know this reality. And that's why inclusion of civil society and the true partnership goal uh, in the SDGs is important. The minute civil society are involved, they, I mean, it's now common knowledge that first, the best way for access for energy is decentralized renewable energy. You know, this is the best way if you want to uh, remove energy poverty, de decentralized renewable energy is the best way to do that. Um, renewable energy is now becoming cheaper in most parts of the world than anything else. Um, the IPCC report clearly states there is a, an economic, net economic gain uh, disregarding climate impacts to go into low carbon economy. So there's more growth in jobs and, uh, uh, and, and profits if we follow a low carbon pathway. This is now, because before the main um, um, uh, argument was that it's, it's going to be expensive to go low carbon. It's going to be harder to reduce poverty. But that's a myth. And now the IPCC clearly says it, and a lot of reports uh, said that. So civil society engagement, uh, um, uh, and IMF and uh, the international uh, uh, development banks need to 
shape the rules and donor countries need to uh, be clear on that any kind of uh, high carbon investment is not acceptable as part of the rules. Which ironically is why China at home is a major investor in green energy technology and you know, regardless of what it's doing Belt and Road, it sees the long term future as positioning <coughs> itself there. But that doesn't always And the reason to. for that is because China concern on climate change is because people pressure because yeah. of the air pollution. Yes. So the minute that video Especially on air pollution in Chinese city came out and over two days mm. it gathered 200 million viewers, yeah. it triggered this uh, climate concern in China. Yeah. But they don't have the same concern investing in other countries. And they blame it on the recipient countries that that's what they want, but they have the power to decide. Mm. Thank you. If we take another round of questions, and I'll move to this side of the room. So one, two, we'll take four at once. We'll try and keep track of those. Maybe. Is it working? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for, for the presentations. Um, what I thought was very interesting in all your presentation is the fact that you have been talking about poverty, but never about income, as we often hear about. For example, when we hear about the SDGs eradicating extreme poverty that we usually define by being under a certain amount of income, like $2 per day. And what I think was very interesting is that we heard about poverty as um, climate vulnerability or gender or agriculture or access to, 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 to the market. So my question was about more the research side of it is how now can we measure poverty according to the fact that just income will never be enough to have a real measurement of this? Thank you. Okay. And uh, my name is Etienne, Etienne, and I work for IMC Worldwide. We are international development consultancy. Thank you. Hello, thank you. My name is Catherine Knox. I used to work at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation running their climate justice research program, but uh, currently doing some other things. Um, I was doing some research on climate migration issues in the UK, uh, and I'm interested in what the panel's views are about whether we need a new international legal protection framework for people who have to move across borders due to climate change, or whether they feel that's a bad way to go, but what do we need to be doing to think about displacement across borders, which may be linked to climate change and possibly other factors as well? Okay, thank you. I'll take both of you and then I'll go to the online. Uh, good evening, I'm Jamie Williams. Uh, I work for Islamic Relief Worldwide and lead on um, senior policy advisor on poverty reduction. I lead on climate change. I'm very happy to hear while uh, coming to tell us that uh, uh, the emergency is upon us and that mitigation is the issue that we all in this room need to be uh, uh, confronting in every aspect of our lives. But I don't want this debate to lose out on the adaptation issues because that's constantly happening, um, it seems, in the, in the larger fora. 
Um, my question really is, is what, do, what do you think the potential is for research and learning about the MISO levels? Uh, Danielle identified that you've been talking about macro-level economics, you've been talking about micro-level economics in terms of her case studies. But I'd just like to um, reflect again what Danielle's her paper on, we know more about it than you think. Um, we've just done a Talanoa dialogue with uh, 13 countries where we work. Um, asking people where they are, where they'd like to be, and how they're going to get there. And it, one of the strongest um, uh, messages that comes out of that is that people do know what their situation is better than anybody else, and they do know the ways out of it very well in a lot of cases and know what they need in order to get out of those. So that process of um, going to the, to the, to the basics, uh, people in their very local situations, um, I'll give you an example in a moment. Um, we, we, Islamic Relief have, have worked on cash, un, unconditional cash transfers, self-help groups, uh, creating the space, creating the, uh, the just having the space for self-help groups to operate. Women, uh, almost always, um, and disaster risk reduction inputs. Um, but in in the case of the ca cash transfers, it's so important that the livelihoods, I think one of the speakers identified the, the non-agricultural livelihoods and the importance of that, but I being able to identify what they are um, can only be done at the very local, most local level. It's not something that can be done at a macro level. Um, and it's also going to be very individualistic, um, but so a case study isn't necessarily going to be able to tell the story in the medium level. So I'll come back to my question again. Where is the research, if there is some, and what's the potential for research at that MISO level? Thank you. Hi, my name is Corinne. I work at the Brook across the road in the farming and resilience team. And I was really interested in the presentation at the beginning, which showed that um, countries that had sustained growth in the agriculture sector, sector seemed to be doing better at reducing poverty. Um, and I was wondering if there was um, underlying themes between each of them that made their agriculture grow to the point of um, long-term poverty reduction um, because we're working on building resilience in farming communities in developing countries okay. particularly so I wanted to know if there were a recurring theme in these successful countries that made them be able to increase their agriculture so much that's fantastic could I maybe for the last one maybe start with Andy and just think yeah. And Mike, can, can I pick one or two other things to oh, yeah, sure, as sure. well? And, uh, yeah, and then say nothing more. Um, on the agriculture thing, I mean, that was also in the study that we did that agriculture was really important for achieving poverty reduction. And I think one big thing is just government focus and government prioritizing of agriculture. A lot of countries that, even if they grew quite well, didn't do very well in agriculture. There was no policy priority given to ag agriculture, and governments were much more focused on natural resources or whatever else it was. So one thing is that. I mean, there's much more to the story than that. But one thing, I think, is just the sort of priority, priority given to agriculture by government in policy. I just wanted to sort of quickly say something on two other questions, but I'll be very brief, Tim. Um, on, the, on, the point about, on the point about income and so on, income is sort of implicit in what we say because agriculture sort of is, and growth we're talking about, sort of implicitly income is there. So income is still part of the poverty story, but of course poverty is much, much more than that and we need to recognise that. And I think that's widely accepted, the multidimensional poverty index. I think that's widely understood at the moment. And I thought I might just say something, Andrew's uh, question about, uh, really tough question about, about growth. 
a lot of developing countries feel we didn't create climate change, it's not our problem, so to speak, and uh, you know, if big important countries in the world are not addressing climate change, why should we be, uh, why should we be prioritizing that in our, in our own programming? Now, the fact that other people are not doing it, of course, is not a reason for you not to do it, but the temptation, I think, is always to try to tax resources because that's an easy source of money. Um, it's not unpopular with local people because you're not taxing local people and so on. But it's exactly the wrong thing to be. It's exactly the wrong thing to be focusing on. It's it's it's, it's focusing on. It's therefore giving incentives for the resource sector to expand. To expand, uh, you're doing. You the such governments that get the resources from those sources are not accountable to the people and so on. It's exactly the wrong thing. Now evidence on that great. I mean, I don't know enough the evidence on green growth and its effectiveness relative to other forms of growth, but I think that evidence does exist. But I don't really know enough to comment on it. Sorry, I took three questions. No, that's fine. You did them <laughs> concisely, so that, that's acceptable. Um, we've only got a few more minutes. Uh, so climate, mitigate, uh, climate migration in the UK, do we need a new legal protection? Um... I will probably go for those who sort of work on the human rights, pros and cons of trying to do that. Gosh, I find it a really difficult question, and um, especially because I, I feel that migration is way too restrictive anyway, mi migration frameworks. Um, so I'm, I'm politically of, of the ilk of open borders. So I find it really difficult to, to respond to that question in a constructive way, to be honest. It's not really my field. Maybe somebody else has a better. I mean, my yeah. knee-jerk instinct would be we have enough difficulties with basic concepts of, you know, refugee and, you know, what counts as voluntary as opposed to force movement. You know, when people fly up fleeing abject poverty are counted as economic refugees, I think it would be very hard to say... I'm fleeing because I'm in abject poverty because of climate. But I, I don't know enough about the legal. I, I think to try and establish a way of proving someone was climate displaced as opposed to displaced by poor economics in other respects it, it would is, be quite hard. It is now being debated in the UN to classify yeah. it, and it is something active. I mean, there are some things that are clear when an island needs to be evacuated. And here, it's a challenge of identity because you're losing a whole country. And the challenge in the UN is even more, okay, we have this on paper that this country exists. The land doesn't exist anymore. Well, you just, you know, erase, scratch it out of the UN or you create a country within another country. So you have, like, legal representation of Marshall Island in uh, California somewhere. That's, uh, this is the government of the Marshall Island in California based because it doesn't exist there. Or you just make them become U.S. citizens, lose their culture, lose their identity. So it's a really, uh, it's, it's even more complicated than you think. But I think uh, now scientists say clearly that climate refugees will overtake political refugees and they're doing specific cl cl classifications for them. Yeah. Does that form part of the loss and damage Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah. It's just interesting. I can just. Yeah. 
Um, I found that the UK haven't really got a very good policy position or haven't really got a policy yeah. position on this. So mm -hmm. approach to food and, and the climate team, the migration team. Right. But no one leading or thinking about the relationship between the two. And that there's a historic policy from 2011. Right. Sorry. I won't go on, but there was a historic uh, piece of work, Foresight Report, in 2011, which looked at all of this, and there was kind of a view taken that this wasn't a big issue that the UK needed to worry about. I mean, climate-related displacement is much more likely to be an issue overseas and in other places than coming to the UK. But nonetheless, it does seem to me that, you know, given there are live questions about stateliness, statelessness yeah. for small island states, uh, and increasing questions about how migration might be affected, that we're not really thinking about it enough in policy terms. So. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think you probably... You're right. I don't know that we have considered it enough, but, um, yeah, mm. I, I think we probably need to start having that conversation. Um, the have we left one unanswered oh yes um we've left two unanswered and we're we need to be out of the room fairly promptly so um briefly mitigation but also adaptation potential for meso level research just to say yes i i, I agree with you a lot i used to work in ethiopia on the productive safety net program i thought that was really interesting because we started it for a certain reason and diff different motivations from different actors involved, government and owners, it evolved over time. Gradually, we accumulated some evidence that actually it had a, a really quite significant adaptation um, benefit. So I, I think that was quite useful, using little case studies, starting to build them up, and eventually you got, you got something that made a case for well-designed public works in, in helping people um, adapt to an inherently variable climate, but one that was becoming more variable and more unpredictably variable. So, yeah, I mean, I think meso-level research is good, but I'll give Fidjo a... Yeah, I mean, that actually <coughs> forms the... I mean, it, together, your question on multidimensional measures and your question on the meso-level really forms together the hallmark of CPAN's Q-squared approach to um, research and understanding poverty dynamics. So we comp typically complement econometric panel-based analysis with qualitative fieldwork, which involves interviews with key informants in the capital city, but also local community levels in which we're doing the fieldwork. Um, this was also going to be done very shortly with regards to climate change in a series of countries, and we're looking to expand the set as well of countries we explore, wherein we undertake focus group discussions as well with local communities. Um, so so with the key informed interviews at the community level, you also get the programmatic and policy-related constraints and enablers to these different issues as well. Um, also, just to emphasize, through this mes through this MISA level framing, I mean, this is, you can think about it as this, if you're looking at the subnational, that's, that's really becoming increasingly the frontier of research in a lot of these issues and a lot of these areas where you look at inclusive governance, climate adaptation, and so on. And just with regards to one quick example on the importance of um, looking at the MISO level and this community level, because, for example, in Ethiopia, one of our past studies showed that w when you look purely at the quantitative analysis, credit, something that we haven't discussed yet, but is associated, statistically associated with an increased risk of impoverishment. 
as opposed to sustained escapes. But then when you look at the focus groups, a lot of times what emerged is these challenges to credit institutions. The farmers were often paying high interest rates. They weren't able to repay debts, um, which were often required on a permanent basis, but their harvests weren't necessarily giving them those income sources on that permanent basis, and so on, a myriad of problems, which then really highlights the need for some for these credit institutions to better adapt to the needs of its poorest clients and so forth. So this is just one example, not necessarily directly related to the climate adaptation points, but very much linked to this importance to focus on a MISA level and the subnational in addition to the national context. I'd also just say longitudinal is great. Um, you know, it takes so long to build up, but it's, it's really good. Um, if you, you know, have community studies and... Uh, this would probably get me into trouble. Um, pure research has a value as well. You know, sometimes studying a community and seeing everything, how it interacts, can reveal some interactions between all these kind of massive issues that you, you hadn't expected and some of the variations. So, um, you know, longitudinal studies in Cambodia, in Ethiopia, in various other places has given some really interesting beneficiaries, recipients, victims, you know, lens on how policies actually work out in practice and how they vary and how they have to be adapted. Um, just on the, the measures thing, I, I agree with Andy. I mean, I think still consumption come income is implicit in what we do, but recognizing that that's a summary measure that tries to capture lots of other things and, you know, lots of control over what goes into being a good life. Um, and it is still a very active conversation about how we get a broader range of instruments to make sure that we capture those nuances. So um, the report that's coming out of the bank today um, has some chapters on, you know, beyond monetary poverty, how can we get, how can we get better range of measures to complement income consumption poverty. So I think it's, it's an interesting, slightly scary, but an interesting time to be working on the intersections of all these issues. And with that, um, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I realized I, there was a comment online, which I have neglected. From James online, um, policy what policy measures can we use to pressure governments in, developing in developed countries, beg your pardon, to drive this agenda? I think we've touched on that to a large degree. Um, I mean, I think it needs to be a mixture of sort of civil society organization transnationally. Um, and I think... I think uh, you know, communications technology does help a little bit with that. Um, how can activism in the UK drive inclusive, inclusive growth in developing countries? I mean, I think just, yeah, the potential, making sure people understand the issues, um, and these are complex issues, but I think they can be, um, they can be communicated well, and building the evidence base, building our ability to communicate them in, a, in an accessible way, and I think, you know, Climate change as an existential threat is a good and a good example of the kind of phrase that we want to lodge in people's heads. Thank you very much. Um, there is a reception which I think goes on for one hour up to 7.30. So if anybody wants to stay on and discuss these issues a little bit further, then I think all the panel can, can stay on. I hope all the panel can stay on. Um, and there's also the issue that um, Vidya raised about, you know, do we want to try and establish some kind of network of people who are interested in in how these issues come together and how we can apply it in, in policy and, and programming work. So if so, then come talk to Vidya or Andrew or, and um, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, please join me in thanking the panel.
Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.